This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is Shannon and Kathy. Yo. Yo. Today on the show, we're going to talk about two unsolved case files. Kathy's favorite show is Unsolved Mysteries. So we do a version where every now and then she does a voice if you can get her to do it. But, you know, mostly unsolved case files, not necessarily mysteries, although we could do that in the future. I can't, and like- I can't do Robert Stack's voice. I do my own version. Okay. All right. Fair enough. She didn't want uh, th- your expectations to be too That's high. Right. And that theme still creeps me out. That something bad happens and then we never know. That's correct. That theme? <laughs> okay. I believe Kathy is going to start us out. So this case is from 1966. It's called the Unsolved Murder of the Robert, Helen, and Joyce Sims case. It's also known as, uh, I think it's the Muriel Court, 641 Muriel Court case. And I just want to say that a few years ago, student at Florida State University by the name of Kyle Jones produced, directed, and edited a documentary on the Sims murder for a school project. And the film Six, 641 Mural Court went on to win a number of awards and is available for anyone to view. I watched a little bit of it, but I haven't completed it. This mm-hmm. case is really eerie. Mm. And I think why I chose it is because if you grew up in the suburbs, that this was the one of the urban legends of living in a, sub, a subdivision of some kind <laughs> where people would sleep with their doors unlocked. And the whole idea of, you know, when we think, I think of like 1980s horror films that <laughs> take place in mm-hmm. suburbs, this story is the cautionary tale, oh, okay. I think. Okay. Really, really sad story. A lot of victims involved. So the, the case place takes place in Tallahassee, Florida. Obviously, the address of the home was 641 Muriel Court. The family had two older girls, but they were uh, out that night. The house was uh, detached and flat on one level. The older daughters that evening were reported babysitting, though a newspaper at the time said one was at a football game. So I'm not, but the the two older girls who I believe were in high school were gone at the time. So the Mm. only other daughter that was there was Joy, who was 12. And then the father, Robert, who was 42 and Helen, the mother was 34. One of the daughters gets home from babysitting and It was later that evening because I guess the family that she had been babysitting for went to the the college football game. So Mm. she was watching the kids. She comes home. She calls the calls 911 and says something terrible has happened. Please come. Norma Jeanette Sims pleaded with a Tallahassee funeral home ambulance service. She stood in her parents bedroom overlooking the bound bodies of her father lying on the bed while her mother and youngest sister lie on the beige carpet. 
On that Saturday, October 22nd, 1966, then 17 year old Sims had been babysitting for a family that attended the Florida State football game. When the game ended and the family returned, she returned home with no one there to welcome her. Although the television was on when she returned to her family's Muriel Court home, no one was gathered watching it as if she'd expected. So she began walking through the house looking for them and eventually entered her parents' bedroom. Sims found her father, Dr. Robert Sims, 42, lying atop the flowered bedspread, bound, blindfolded, and shot once in the head. On the beige, beige carpet, she found her mother, Helen Sims, 34, bound, blindfolded, and shot twice in the head and once in her leg. Diagonal to her mother, Sims found her youngest sister, Joy Lynn, 12 years old, still in her nightgown. Joy had been shot in the head once and stabbed six times in the abdomen. When their daughter arrived at home, her parents were still alive. So um, I think only the, the little sister was dead. Her mother was then transported to the hospital where she lost the fight for her life nine days after her husband and the youngest child. So when when the mother was taken, there was this hope. And I was reading some newspaper clippings of like real time. And they were talking about how um, everything's going to have to do with whether this woman lives because she'll be able to at least give, you know, a description. Right. It was the owner of Bevis or Beavis. Beavis, uh, funeral home, Russell Bevis and a 16 year old son, Rocky, who first arrived at the home upon arriving, Bevis sent his son to fetch something to unbind the parents in the attempt to save their lives. One of the first investigators to arrive was Larry Campbell, the 24 year old who became the lead detective, which is crazy. He was so young. He became the lead detective from Leon County Sheriff Department on the case. Almost immediately, Robbery was ruled out as a motive for the murders. There was no evidence of anything being moved around or stolen. Also, you think about a 12-year-old girl was stabbed in the abdomen six times. Clearly, she was not trying to overpower them. Clearly. And so that, to me, just feels very personal. Right. Right? The case has never been solved, although it's been, it has been reopened a number of times. And obviously, we know that Kyle Jones, the student, ended up doing a documentary on it. So it's been the topic of a lot of different uh, unsolved cases. It's like a really famous one. Hmm. The Sims murders were always a case that weighed heavily on Campbell's mind, Campbell, the detective. And he worked on it throughout the years and was repeatedly hard on himself for never solving the crime. So he felt haunted by the things that he saw that night. And I can only imagine like being 24 years old and being on this case where there, at least at this point, they there aren't any witnesses. They walk in. It's incredibly gore, like just grotesque, and having then to live with that without any resolution. Some information about this family: the family was admired by their community, and people were shaken to their core upon hearing of the murders. They were very respected. They were a close knit family. Robert Sims was the director of data processing for the Florida Department of Education and his wife, Helen, the former secretary at First Baptist Church of Tallahassee. They were buried at uh, Hebron Baptist Church Cemetery in Mississippi. So there wasn't any, as far as they knew, there was no controversy around this family. There was, there weren't any leads as far as like maybe the husband was cheating on her. The kids didn't have any, uh, any bad blood with kids at school. So it was really... Uh, bizarre because usually after this time they'll at least have 
theories around like we found out that the father was attached to this or he was indebted over here. None of that was found. So with no arrests, the community feared that there might have been a, a serial killer at large. So there was no trick or treating that year. You think this is a subdivision that essentially shut down. This neighborhood shut down because nobody had any clue. They seemed to be completely chosen at random. Hmm. There were no motives as far as they knew of. You have a child that was in some ways more brutally assaulted than the parents. So this whole neighborhood goes into complete panic. Of right? course. So there's no trick-or-treating that year. The people became extremely aware of their surroundings and protective of their families. So a neighborhood that went from sleeping with the doors unlocked and saying hi to everybody and all of a sudden... Are you a suspect? Are you a suspect? Are you a suspect? The 80s were like that for a lot of us. Yeah. (laughs) It turned on a dime. (laughs) Exactly. So to think, and again, thinking and comparing it to growing up in a subdivision and knowing all of my neighbors and feeling like if that would have changed overnight, that would have been so jarring and eerie and creepy. Mm -hmm. So, and this is a time before social media, cameras, anything, you know, people got away literally with murder. Yeah. At this time. Absolutely. And the randomness, seeming randomness is the way to go, unfortunately. That's right. And no fingerprints, right? There was no, none of the DNA stuff like we have now. Right. So there've been multiple persons of interest over the years, including a pastor that Helen Sims quit working for uh, a short time before the murders and a teenager who lived around the corner and committed a grisly murder years later. There was also a teen couple with a a specific case knowledge that was never made public. Even if you look at all three of those potential suspects, they all seem still incredibly random. They do. Right? Because you look at the first guy. So, okay, maybe he, he went on to murder someone three years later, but there's no direct motive for that family. Mm -hmm. Then there's a teen couple with a specific, with who also knew things that were very specific to that case, but it never went anywhere. There was no motive. It never went public. And essentially the idea behind that was completely closed. So what I did is I started to look through and see how many people had actually spoken on this case. And there was this, this blog reason crime chronicle.com unsolved murder of the Robert Helen and Joyce Sims, 1966 case. And people were like writing in and some people would write in stating that they lived in that area at the time or that they maybe like had some information. They didn't really come up with much other than the fact that, you know, there were some people who believed that they were around that house at that time. And there were three young men in a, a Valiant, which is a car at that time, a Plymouth, that is as far as it went. They think that uh, it could have had to have done with one of the teenagers, teenage girls maybe had, had uh, sex with one of these boys and there was sort of a revenge on her family. But after all of these years, you know, 50, over 55 years has gone by, the daughters now would be in their 70s, I think. And the case remains unsolved. And they believe at this point, they really don't have enough for it to ever really go anywhere. So I, uh, I haven't gotten through this entire film that Kyle Jones did. But for I think it's just drawn a lot of attention just because random people have written in saying I was there, I was around that house at the time, but it's never led anywhere. And then again, like I said, it's sort of this cautionary tale or this urban legend of living in, in suburbia and what people fear. So it feels like there were so many of those, but maybe 
1966, I don't know, maybe it was one of the first of its time to right. get, get so much attention. And yeah, like um, I do think of the 70s, so maybe 66, 66. Is a little bit early. Yeah. And I wonder too, you know, you think this is all, you know, just thinking about if the if the wife wouldn't have died what kind of information if at all we would have gotten from her being able to describe of course who assaulted but you think like someone goes in and kills a 12 year old girl that it, it was so grotesque and it was so the whole situation was so dark you have to wonder like if they're going to kill the father and kill the daughter that way if it was really about the father they may have kept him alive and and killed mm -hmm. the daughter so the fact that all of them were killed yeah Someone knew those two daughters were not home. And that's what makes me lead to like, was this someone that the girls went to school with? Especially yeah. if they saw three boys outside in a car. Sure, sure. Absolutely. But really, really violent and Very terrifying violent. because it's, it, there's so much unknown around the case. Yeah. yeah. And so much of the time, people who commit these crimes go to prison later on something else, something else. and never cop to the other things that they've done. That's and so right. you just never know because they, they're not out there being a serial killer. You think, though, from the definition or description of the way these people were murdered, you know, you think of like the BTK, so mm -hmm. like the, the binding and the torturing and the that there was obviously this was all sadism. There was mm -hmm. some level of like the thrill of doing this. And and for that reason, it could have been random. And it but it also definitely felt like a repeatable thing. In other words, it does have a flavor of serial killing mm -hmm. and you never know if it's also then associated with somebody that went on to do more you know that's right like it's if a, this was somebody who ended up being a serial killer because the 70s were full of them and this was maybe one of the first right, right? like when he was still a kid yeah and or there's more than one just because of law of averages but yeah there's more than one and uh, and Jen, just thinking about yeah it's pretty it's a pretty sophisticated it did seem murder. sophisticated it didn't mm -hmm. seem that's why it's like hard to think about it as random, but right. Yeah. And you can go online and they have all the original news clippings and photos, which is always really creepy, I think. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah. I'll move on to mine, which is called a lot of different things. The first thing it's called is the Glico Morinaga case or the monster with 21 faces. Mm. This happened in Japan in 1984. So the monster with 21 faces was a name uh, used as an alias by the group responsible for the blackmail letters that come later in this case in 1984. So, and that name comes from a fictional villain in a, in a I believe in a graphic no novel called The Fiend with 20 Faces. Kind of a riff on that. But the whole thing starts out with a kidnapping. At around 9 p.m. on March 18th, 1984, two masked men armed with a pistol and a rifle uh, later, they I guess they figured out that they were maybe toy guns, but anyway, they were armed with that. Used a key stolen from the home next door, who must have had like a, an emergency key, to enter the home of Izaki Glico, the president of Katsuhishi Izaki. So if you don't know the Glico brand, it was a brand back then that was famous for, it was a confectionery company in Japan. Mm -hmm. And if you Google uh, GLICO, which is Glico, you'll see some of their products that they did. So it was a very high profile because this guy's house, the president, is the son of, I think, the first, well, it's like a long lineage of, of people who have had this company like in the family from like the 1920s or something. And so this was the young buck. 
The home next door belonged to Katsuhishi's 70-year-old mother, Yoshi, and was located on the same property, surrounded by a brick wall. The criminals had broken into, into her home, tied her up with a cut telephone line, grabbed the key, went over to the son's home that does have a security system. So having entered the home of this guy, the president, two masked men tied up his wife, who was 35 at the time, and his eldest daughter, seven years old, and offered them, uh, you know, I mean, during this, all while this is happening, of course, this president uh, is offering the men money and, you know, I guess one of the men said, like, be quiet, money's irrelevant type of thing. So after cutting some of the telephone lines, the two masked men located Katsuhisa Isaki, who's the male in the family who was bathing his other two children. Let me just review. They go in the home. They tie up the wife and the seven-year-old. They don't know where the guy is. They find the husband, and he's bathing his other two children, who are four and 11. Then they abduct him. Apparently, he, like, hides out for a while trying to, like, wait for them to go away or something. (laughs) But they find him, and they abduct him naked from his home and take him to a warehouse in Osaka. Three days after his abduction, he was able to escape after breaking free from the ropes. However, he was unable to identify who had him, apparently, (laughs) which is hard to believe, but also... If they kept, you know, hoods on or whatever the whole time, obviously you wouldn't be able to. So this is where it starts. This abduction, they take him, he's able to leave. And then several weeks after this abduction, this group of people, the monster with 21 faces, sets fire to several vehicles at the company headquarters. So you start to know, like, you know, who abducts a president, right? You know, it's got to be something to do with the company, some kind of high profile thing. They set fire to several of the company's headquarters. And then in in April, so this is like a full month later, a plastic container full of acid was found inside of the Glico company building in Osaka. So who knows if that was going to be like they were going to blow it up or we're just not sure. While that's happening, a couple of weeks after the kidnapping, letters start arriving The monster with 21 faces sends a letter to the police. And this is an English translation. So, you know, are you stupid? (laughs) It says (laughs) there's so many of you. What on earth are you doing? If you are real pros trying to catch me, there's too much handicap. So I will give you a hint. (laughs) Again, it's a translation. He's basically like, you're an asshole. Mm -hmm. Let me give you some more clues. They love to shame the police, right? There's no fellows in the Asaki's relatives, meaning there's no men, I guess. There's no fellows in the police. There's no fellows in flood fighting corp. I don't have any idea what any of this means, but he says, he then says, car I used is gray. Food was bought at Diani or whatever that's called. One of their grocery stores, I imagine. If you want new info, beg for it in the newspaper. After telling you all this should be able to catch me. If you don't, you are tax thieves. Shall I kidnap the head director of the profession? <laughs> He's just taunting, you know, the taunting yeah. that happens. He's basically like, you stupid. Here's my car. Here's where I bought some food. Hello. You're not giving me enough notoriety because you're too stupid is basically what that says to me. That's so funny. 
obviously they got a little bit of information from that. Uh, he also sent letters to the media. There was that happening, taunting the police, which we see a lot. And an excerpt from one of the letters to, to the media was, Dear dumb police officers, don't tell a lie. All crimes begin with a lie, as we say in Japan. Don't you know that? Like, he's just taunting them. Ah, oh, you shouldn't lie. If you lie, you steal. I also sent this to the Koshian police. Why are you lying? Don't hide things. Why are you complaining? You guys have are having such a hard time. So I will give you a hint. <laughs> he keeps... <laughs> What I see about this is just so the reason why I'm laughing because the taunting, although the nature of this is kind of juvenile, but it's also you're not giving me enough attention because you're not trying to catch me. Like, right. Like, why not, don't you want to like, come get hello, me? Hello. Yeah. Like, figure it out so that I can become no, more notorious. Which and, is my, and they're over here going, we don't care. Yeah, I guess. Or just they didn't. Maybe they were. I don't know. Uh, he be- goes on to say, like, I entered the factory from the side staff entrance. The typewriter we used is a pan writer. The plastic container used was a piece of street garbage. <laughs> like, oh writing them with all these hints. It just makes me funny. That's hilarious. So I guess... The next thing that happens is that they write a letter in May. So remember that the the kidnapping was March 18th. The letters sort of started in April and then by May. So all those taunting letters were happening through April. And then, so this is all happening very fast. So then by May 10th, the monster with 21 faces sends a, another letter to the food company, the Glico food company and states that they've laced $21 million worth of the company's confections with potassium cyanide soda. And it later, and they later threatened to put more on the shelves. The company of course took a bunch of stuff off the market and did what companies do. And then of course it was found that none of the poison candies were ever found, but Glico, you know, removed a lot of products from stores. They lost $20 million laying off 450 part-time workers. And by the end of the ordeal, Glico reported a total decrease in sales of nearly $130 million. Mm. On June, in June now, so the next month, the Monster with 21 Faces issues a message proclaiming its forgiveness of Glico and subsequent <laughs> harassment of the company ceased. <laughs> oh my God. I just, I don't. <laughs> All right. So after ceasing the harassment of Glico, the Monster with 21 Faces began targeting. Morinega, which is, if you remember, the original name of this is like the Glico Morinega Uh case. So it's both things. So this is another confectionery company. And so in October, so we were to May to now to October, a letter addressed to Moms of the Nation and signed by the monster with 21 faces was sent. I love this one. (laughs) You saw our power, didn't you? If you disobey us, we will destroy your company. You will get killed. Decide whether you want to give us money or do you want to see your company destroyed? (laughs) Tell us in the paper on the 5th or the 6th of November. Use these words. And then they have all these words, the code words or whatever. So once again, they're like threatening for no reason, really? Like just to ruin, I guess? It's kind of hard to tell. So the letters stopped again and they were unable to catch anyone. The superintendent, I guess, Yamamoto of that area died by suicide by self-immolation in August of 1985. And five days after this event on August 12, the monster sent its final message to the media. Yamamoto 
died. How stupid of him. We've got no friends or secret hiding place. (laughs) (laughs) And then they're like threatening other people to die. And what have you been doing for this year and five months? Don't let the bad guys get away with this. Blah, blah, blah. All this stuff. It's fun to lead a bad man's life is kind of how they sign it. Like, okay. So there were some suspects. Okay. There were three suspects that I've read about. Um, Maybe there are more. I'm not sure. The videotaped man is one of the ones listed. So following threats by the monster with 21 faces to poison Glico confections and the resulting mass withdrawal of all those products, a man wearing a Giants baseball cap, not American, but Yamiuri Giants baseball cap, was caught placing Glico chocolate on a store shelf by a security camera. And this man was believed to be behind the monster with 21 faces. And so the security family, the security camera photo was made public after the incident. So that's one option. Like he was part of it or whatever. Another was the Fox eyed man on June 28th, 1984, two days after the monster agreed to stop harassing in exchange for 50 million yen, police came close to capturing the suspected mastermind hypothetically an investigator disguised himself as an employee and followed the monster's instructions for the money exchange. As he was riding a train to the money's drop point, he noticed a suspicious man watching him. He was described as a large, well-built man wearing sunglasses and with his hair cut short and permed, permed. Okay. Well, (laughs) 1984, I guess. Permed. I'm so sorry. It was a bad time. He was also quoted to have eyes like those of a fox. They tailed him. They and then he they eventually, you know, he eventually eluded them and they started calling him the monster. Like maybe that's the guy, but that's just a bag man, right? And then there's this other guy, Manabu Miyase. See, this is my problem. Why do I pick these international <laughs> cases? And I can never pronounce the names. I just try to make it hard for myself. Uh. Tokyo Metropolitan Police at first identified Manabu Miyazaki, the son of the a known Yakuza boss, which is a criminal family, and a criminal himself as the fox-eyed man and the videotaped man because of his resemblance to these suspects. So they thought he was both people, I guess. He'd also been involved with a labor dispute with Glico 10 years prior. However, like after his alibis kind of checked out, he was cleared. So they don't know. They don't know who did all of this, and they don't, I mean, they don't even know the organization that did all this. It's it's interesting to me because it's hard to see, like, why. <laughs> like, at first they're saying, oh, money's not a part of this, and then later they're saying, we destroy your company, et cetera. But because of the letters, it really feels like that's why they were doing it, like the power, the control, the... It, it just felt like a game. Yeah, a game, and then... From what I've observed, a lot of times these kinds of crimes or pathology that's like, we're going to destroy your company or blow up this or do that. There's some sort of, of course, misled and awful kind of agenda, Mm -hmm. an agenda that's published in the paper or something, you know, where they, where you find out what, what, what's it all about kids. And then they go out in a blaze of glory of some kind. Or they're caught in their mom's basement building bombs or something. Right. But there was none of that. And I don't, that's a very American way of looking at it because that's what's happened here is that's usually what happens here is there's some sort of manifesto and then they get caught because, you know, 
not very bright or whatever. Well, I just think it's funny how much they, it's like maybe they just didn't get the notoriety that they wanted. And yeah, it seems really, and it that's seems really childlike what, though, it, right? It very much. And maybe that's the translation. I, I give that to it, but still. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. A little something different. Yeah. And we both picked <laughs> Home Invasion. It started with the Home Invasion. I picked it because the kidnapping was interesting, but then it very quickly took a different turn. I was like, oh, it's like corporate espionage with candy. Chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to you. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys, for, to me poorly pronouncing pronouncing all the words. So thanks so much. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.